You're listening to the Talking Rheumatology podcast, brought to you by the British Society for Rheumatology. Hello, and welcome to Talking Rheumatology. We're here at the British Society for Rheumatology, and you're meeting where we've actually had an unveiling of what is new in the world of psoriatic arthritis and within the new BSR guidelines. With us are two of the authors, and I'm going to get them to introduce themselves, um, starting off with Laura. Yeah, so I'm Laura Coates. I'm an Associate Professor from the University of Oxford and co-chaired the PSA guidelines. And Will. My name is William Tillett. I'm a rheumatologist from Bath in the UK, and I had the privilege of co-chairing the guideline committee alongside Laura. Okay, so... Let's tell us a bit about the guidelines. A, why did we need a new set? So the last set were in 2012. Um, so it has been a while since they needed updating. And we've actually completely changed the title because the last recommendations were all about TNF because that's all we had at the time. So they were recommendations for biologics and specifically TNF. Um, but now, obviously, we have loads of new medications available to us licensed in psoriatic arthritis and increasing evidence about differential efficacy in some of the different domains of disease. So we thought it was really important to have that update to include the newer drugs, the different mode of actions and try and hopefully help rheumatologists pick the right drug for the right patient. Okay. Is there anything new about the old drugs? Is there anything that you thought would be need updating on the TNFs, Will? Absolutely, Marlon. You know, this is not just about new modes of action that have come about. Our understanding of psoriatic disease has expanded. Our understanding of comorbidities, the license indications for the different drugs outside the psoriatic disease spectrum, as well as uh, our understanding of treatment to target and how that should be implemented, have all really strengthened and evolved over the last decade. And we've included those in the guideline and, and hopefully in a really clinically applicable, accessible way. Right, so why is this guideline different then from all the other guidelines? I mean, you've both been involved internationally with these ULAR guidelines, these ACR guidelines. So, Laura, what do you think the differences are? Yeah, so I think uh, we've talked before uh, about the number of recommendations that exist for PSA, and it can be tricky. But I think there is a real benefit to having country-specific guidelines. So, um, ULAR and GRAPA are both international recommendations, and there's really a limit on how directive you can be about recommendations and how specific you can make it to different healthcare settings. And obviously the ACR recommendations are technically national guidelines for the US uh, where they're working in a very different healthcare setting. So I think our guidelines are in keeping with the ULAR and GRAPA international recommendations but provide a little bit more guidance that's UK specific around access to medications, um, choice of medications, uh, and really focusing in on hopefully more detailed guidance for UK clinicians. So would non-UK clinicians take anything away from the guideline, Will? Absolutely. I, I think something that we've really hoped to enshrine in these guidelines is clinical utility. All right. So we've taken a really robust approach. They're NICE approved. Uh, uh, we've used uh, a stringent literature review with the support of GRAPA, which I think we, it's important to acknowledge. Uh, and with that information, instead of taking a disease journey approach that necessarily ULAR uh, have taken, or is A better than B, arguably as the ACR have taken, we've looked to take that evidence into common disease treatment decisions that need to be made in a clinic on a regular basis. Uh, so not only is 
how effective drugs are in terms of articular disease, encephalitis, dactylitis, skin disease, and so on. But considerations that may influence your treatment decisions when it comes to comorbidities and extraarticular manifestations. And so I would say the thing that really distinguishes the BSR guidelines and the things that uh, clinicians from other countries would find helpful is a really clinically usable guideline for their clinical practice. So is there going to be an audit tool that comes with this for people to look at their disease? Yeah, so there is indeed an audit tool um, developed alongside the guidelines um, and that will be available when they're published uh, alongside the full guideline and the executive summary. So people can look and see if there's treatment to target is actually happening. Uh, do you feel that this will help the patient journey and will, will help people? So we'll ask both of you to answer the question in a slightly different way. So um, how would this guideline help your patient journey with surgical arthritis throughout? I'll start with that, shall I? I think what, something that we've really tried to do is put the patient at the centre of the treatment decisions in the guideline. Some of that comes from uh, all of the stakeholders that we involved. So not only have we got dermatologists and rheumatologists, as well as gastroenterologists and so on, we've also had really strong patient representation. Um, so a great example of that is in the, the application of the treat to target approach. So we've recommended treat to target, we've recommended the target of remission or low disease activity, but we've really put the patient at the center of that discussion, that shared decision-making process um, around uh, achieving the treatment goals that are really important to them. So for me, from a patient perspective, it's putting the patient at the centre of those treatment decisions is the thing that really will improve their journey. And did you discover any gaps at all for research? Are there evidence-free zones that you think should direct your, your, you know, your future looking at thoracic arthritis? Yeah, so I think as soon as you write guidelines, you realise that there's lots of things we don't know and lots of evidence that, that is missing. Um, we've got an increasing number of drugs, which is brilliant. We've got lots of good evidence for drugs working compared to placebo but we're still quite limited in treatment strategy evidence so how we use the drugs that we have how many DMARDs you have before you go on to a biologic how you switch um, do you switch mode of action or cycle within a mode of action um, all of those questions are certainly improving we're getting more evidence coming through from registries and some studies but I think there's still a big gap to say that we could definitely offer strong advice um, on all of those decisions for clinicians. Okay. Uh, well, what about JAK inhibitors? We haven't spoken about those. So we've now got two in the UK at least, and then there's going to be more on the horizon. How can you speculate what's going to be happening when you come to update these guidelines in five years' time? Well, as you've mentioned, uh, we're talking today from the BSR conference, and we've had a number of really terrific jack inhibitor presentations haven't we with the most up-to-date information when it comes to jack inhibitors and cytokine arthritis guidelines that we put together that was really founded in the systematic literature review did at the very beginning and of course the oral surveillance data uh, is the thing that we've really looked at and that's focused on tofacitinib and safety data and sets of jack inhibitors and, and we've really adhered to where the evidence lies in terms of the guidance as it sits at the moment i think that we will see new data when it comes from post-marketing surveillance, real-world uh, data turning into real-world evidence that will really inform the difference between the individual jack inhibitors within that class that really hope will inform our decision-making process and give us a better idea of that balance between safety and efficacy but that's, you know, this is something that we had to go through with the anti-TS different drugs within a mode of action came out so we're really used to this and I, I don't think we should be frightened of it great drugs with really potent effects you know across multiple different 
indications and we're going to be a really useful therapeutic option for us then we just need a bit more time uh, and hopefully a rapid review of our guidelines so that we can guide clinicians on on, on where the evidence lies and just finally you know if you're going to sell your guideline if you like to your colleagues and internationally how would you summarize it what would you say so i would say uh, the bsr guidelines are really useful in your clinic so there's at-a-glance information in the figure or the table that we've produced available in the executive summary to make decisions but if you're interested in the nitty-gritty then the full guideline will give you information on why we've made treatment decisions we're really closely linked with highly regarded other society, British Association of Dermatology, British Society of Gastroenterology and others to offer guidance that members can look at and know is reliable. Uh, so hopefully this is all around clinical decision making uh, and ease of access to the reader. Okay, I'll catch you on. Do you have one, Laura? Yeah, so I think I'd say it's... Um a guideline that's in keeping with other international guidelines but offers more hopefully clinically useful advice a little bit more um, eminence-based medicine included as well to offer guidance where there are research gaps and hopefully very clinically applicable in the UK and I think also across Europe and other healthcare settings. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Talking Rheumatology, brought to you by BSR. Please do rate, share and subscribe through your favourite podcast app.